Entrepreneurs Over 40, episode 58, with Chef Dennis Litley talking about his food and travel blogging. You can blog about anything, and people will read them if you're passionate. And I always tell people 40 is a good time to start planning for your future. I tell people that want to be bloggers, I says, look, start now. Don't quit your day job. Let's plan for your future so that when you're 50, they can be mailing those checks to the beach to you, where you're wherever or whatever island you're on. They direct deposit really, really nicely. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Ask Chef Dennis Productions, where he runs one of the most successful food blogs in the world. With over 1 million followers on social media and almost 10 million page views annually, he's built a loyal following that uses his recipes and cooking tips and techniques in their home kitchens to feed their family and friends easy-to-make restaurant-style dishes at a fraction of the cost of eating out. Chef Dennis also works with travel companies and cruise lines, showcasing their travel opportunities as he shares his travel adventures and the deliciousness he's enjoying as he travels the world. Without further ado, Chef Dennis Litley. Hey, Greg. Thanks so much for having me on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for being here. Now, Chef Dennis, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world today? Sure, sure. You know, travel hasn't been a big part of my life over the past few years because of the pandemic and how it's affected the world. But we're hoping in the spring next year to get back on some kind of schedule. As long as things work themselves out, I think we're down to just having a pretty bad cold right now if we catch COVID, which is fine. Get back to some life as normal. But we're having a really good time. We moved to New Jersey. I had mentioned that to you earlier. We got a condo, so we're back up here for the summer. So we're at the Jersey Shore. Basically, it's a seven-minute drive across the bridge to get to that. It's almost like going home for me. I didn't grow up right in this area, but it was familiar to me. So it's been nice coming back here. And, you know, food blog's doing great. The pandemic was very, very good to me (laughs) because everybody was eating at home. So I picked up a lot of new readers and I've been developing a lot of new recipes and creating. So I'm having a good time. Now, did you come from an entrepreneurial background at all? Did anybody in your family have their own business? No. My mom was a nurse and she was a nurse up until she was almost 80. She might've been 82 when she stopped, but uh, she was a nurse all of her life. My dad was in the army and then he kind of learned to be an electrician and he went to work for a yacht company on the docks and worked his way up up into management. So uh, no, no entrepreneurial. (laughs) Can you describe kind of your career question as you've gone through? Because I'm thinking that you didn't start at Chef and then become a world-famous blogger. So how did all of this kind of come about? I think a lot of it is accidental. For me, it was being in the right place at the right time. I started flipping burgers when I was 12. There was a hamburger place within a half a mile walk of the house, and I was a frequent frequent patron of that place, Wimpy Burgers. When I graduated eighth grade, I got a job there, and by the next year, I was the manager of the place because I was an overachiever at that point <laughs> of my life. I was the jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Everything looked 
greener on the other side. And then finally, I was working as a manager. I had managed restaurants and I was managing a nursing home. I usually had, I still do. I usually had a good four-year shelf life before people looked at me and went, oh, you're just more trouble than you're worth. <laughs> in, the, in the beginning of my career, I was the messiah because I changed everything they ever wanted changed. I was picky like that even after I'd fixed things. And then I was just a pain in the butt. So about four years into working in this hamburger chain, I left really quickly and got a job because my mother worked there at a nursing home as the food service director. And I was lucky enough to have a woman there who had retired and she was a dietitian and she had been the head dietitian at a huge hospital and also the head of food services. She had done two different stints there and she taught me so much. And while I was there again, towards the end of my career, one of my salesmen said, Hey, this restaurant is looking for somebody to work there and train. And I didn't let on. I knew anything really at that point that I'd had any training. And I went over there and it was Oh, it was horrible. It was cramped. It was busy. It was hot. But I knew I'd find a home because at the end of the first shift, I turned to the owner, the chef, and said, I wish I'd been more help. And he looked at me and said, yeah, I wish you had too. <laughs> so <laughs> I knew I'd found a kindred spirit. And we actually became very good friends. And I looked at him as a mentor for a, a good many years during the path as I learned how to really be a chef and run a restaurant. And that kind of just built into what it was over the course of the years. I, I went to different restaurants and different places, and I always tended to come back there. And then I had two carpal tunnel surgeries on my hands, and I wasn't supposed to work as a chef anymore. And I got a job in management for a food service company. And I was there working there and course of things. Uh, I was in a place that the food was horrible. So I went back in the kitchen and started cooking. And it was almost like legendary at that point. And then I had a second carpal tunnel surgery because I had ruined my hand again. And uh, when I came back, my boss was gone. And I called him and said, what happened to you? He goes, oh, I left. I went to this different company. That's a school system. He goes, I got a job for you. And I went, oh, no, I'm not ready to go out to pasture and just sit in an office and cook school food. He goes, no, no, go out. And I went out there and it was really outdated. It didn't look like a good situation at all. And I'm going to nicely tell the principal and the president of the school, the nuns that thank you for the opportunity, but I don't think I'll take it. And the principal said, and you work 165 days a year. And I went, when would you like me to start? Oh. I was living in New Jersey, and the school was in Flowertown, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Chestnut Hill, outside of Philadelphia. And my wife was a teacher. So unless there was a state of emergency, I had to dig myself out and get to work. You know, even if none of my employees showed up, I had to be there to cook for whoever came into work that day. It's executive dining. So I took the job. I was on the same schedule as her. In fact, I had more days off because I was at a Catholic school and we had other holidays off. And it was great. And I didn't make as much money. I took a, a pretty good pay cut for it, but it was a quality of life move. And a few years into that, I was hiring temps for events and they were horrible for the most part. And I got the idea to start training my own staff. So I started a culinary program at the school. 
And I started training girls to cook, teaching them to cook, figuring I could use them for events. And the school was very happy because I was doing something really good for the school. And the company I worked for was happy because I was giving to the community and doing part of it. They were real big on that. And it was good for everybody. No one bothered me. End of the year, the biggest event. I had 11 girls left out of 60 that signed up for the program because they just couldn't make time. They were all really busy. All of them went to college. They had full plates. So I had 11 freshmen left that could fit me in to their schedules. And I, I told them to wear black pants, a t-shirt. I would give them a chef coat and tell them how to show them how to wear an apron. Cool. So they looked really good. It wasn't for working, but it was for looking good. I dressed them up, walked them out into the main dining room with about 500 people. And it was like, you could have heard a pin drop. No one had a clue what I was doing. He was a good guy. The girls love him. Everything's good. Don't even bother going down there. So then I just kept training them and they got better and better. My last year there, I had students that had been with me for four years. And in fact, we had a recertification of the school and the school was given two points of excellence, one for the robotics team, which won national titles and one for the culinary team. And the girls actually had set the room made most of the food, served the food and cleared the room because I was so sick. I was in the office just helping them if they had questions and they did everything. So it was kind of fun to see how they progressed. And I wasn't trying to train many chefs. I was trying to teach them the concept that food is not rocket science. It's food. You can make it. Let's see what we have in the refrigerator. So in the walk-in, and I would take him in there. All right, what do you want to make today? What are you chicken? All right, grab that. What do you want to put with it? Broccoli? All right, grab that. Grab some mushrooms. All right, what else do you want to put in it? And then we go out and we create something with it. Not all the time, but when days I hadn't set up a class criteria, that was always the catch-all. And says, you know, you can make dinner really easily. It's not hard. You just have to get a few key skills and you have to know how to get the food you're buying. Sourcing it is always the biggest thing. How did you go from there to starting a blog and YouTube channel and all of the Ask Chef Dennis productions? Well, when I started the class, it was 2009 and blogging was brand new and it was the wild, wild west. And I saw it and I went, you know, I'm going to start a blog so the girls have somewhere to go to interact with me and engage with me. And they can ask about recipes or they can tell me because you can comment back and forth and stuff. It wasn't a chat room, but it was kind of above that. And of course, none of the girls ever wanted to go to it. They wanted to stop in the office and just talk to me directly. But kids in the school and teachers in the school, because I would post what we were eating and they love me. I wasn't feeding them what schools eat. I was feeding them what I was used to making executives and restaurants. We were having chicken marsala and sushi and all kinds of things, you know, so they'd go for the recipes and they'd, well, how did you make that? Of course, they were more interested in like my peanut butter pie and things like that, <laughs> but they would go for those. And then I joined a community of bloggers called Food Buzz. And that was basically the catalyst that made it possible to get in the right direction to become a business. You know, at that point, I had these grand aspirations. Everybody does when they start something thinking, oh, they're going to be the next best thing or they're going to be big. Hardly ever happens that way or overnight or quickly. Sometimes every now and then someone grabs that thunder immediately and just runs with it. But for me, it wasn't it. I was working 50 hours a week. I was 
trying to find time to create at home and take the pictures and learn all the rest about blogging. So it was a process. And then social media, how do I get in social media? And then it was just, it was a lot to do. And then Google Plus started, I think it was 2011. And I felt like I found my people. (laughs) I had such a good time on there. And I really, where I had been late to the game and all other social medias, I was on a level playing field. It was brand new. And I went at it like nobody's business and became Philadelphia's power user. And I was rewarded by being featured as one of the people to follow along. Anthony Bourdain and Rachel Ray and Martha Stewart and uh, Amor Lagasse and all these big guys. I'm looking, how the hell did I get up there? You know, and I started getting more followers and more followers. And I was doing all these live shows and it was just crazy. And then I was started getting requested to speak at conferences. So then I was making a conference tour and talking about things and I was getting more well-known and I was picking up more followers. Still wasn't making any money, (laughs) but I was laying the groundwork because I was still learning what I was doing. There was no manuals back then. There are some now, but there were no, and no one would tell you anything because they were afraid you were going to steal their thunder, steal their business, which is the less truth you can say, because if you do good and you bring everybody up with you, everybody does good and rising tide raises all boats. Who you think is your biggest competitor, I've said this for years, should be your best friend. Because you got the same thing in common and interest and, you know, you can help each other really keep growing if you don't fight and think they're trying to hurt you or steal your recipe or or something. You know, it's just, it's crazy. So I worked on that premise and I helped a lot of people and it was always, what can we do for you? And I was like, nothing. I said, just pay it forward. Just pay it forward. That's always been my premise for that. So eventually I got to the point you know, someone would point me in another direction of an ad company that was really good. And it was just beginning. It was called Media Vine. And it was, oh, they just starting out, but they really love their people. And the, the, the president of the company was the one that actually set my blog up. That's how small they were at the time. Right. So I still remind him about that. He says, you remember you went in? I didn't know what was going on. I said, please don't lose anything. You know, I, I was actually flying to Florida to look for a home. And it was the day that he did it. And he says, okay, you're all set up. Everything's good. And I think the first month with them, I made like $300. And I was like, oh my God, I've hit the big time. Because I was making maybe $50 before then with this other company. I was doing great. And I was like, wow. And, you know, you just keep at it. I, I was retired at that point. We had moved to Florida. I had more time to commit to it. I have people say, what do you do for a living? You're a blogger. And they kind of snicker a little bit. You know, until I tell them that they, how much I made last year. And then they look at me and go, what? <laughs> how much did you make last year? $417,000. Wow. That's nothing to snicker at. No, I'm always all about full disclosure. Uh, the government knows. So I figure what the hell I made more than I thought. Cause I owed the government a, a pretty good chunk of change at the end of the year. And I pay them <laughs> quarterly, but my accountant said, Oh my God, congratulations, first of all. Second of all, you owe the government $57,000 more. (laughs) So I was like, I made money. I got to pay. I paid them more last year than I made almost every year of my life, except for the last four. You know, I started at the low end and it's just over the years, it's just increased and increased. Last year was a monumental year because the COVID business really rolled. When COVID first hit, no one was paying us anything. We were getting traffic like mad. 
but they missed the early opportunity to really advertise through us because their budgets had been cut because they didn't know what was happening. It was the end of the world as we knew it at that point when it first hit. Then when they realized, hey, everybody's cooking, this is the best time to be advertising with bloggers. So it just really built to a point. Now people are eating out more. So the business, I won't make that much this year. Business is coming down a bit. It'll still be good, but it's not going to be that good. Again, it did not happen overnight. I work 60 to 70 hours a week now. Okay. It's not something that you can set more on autopilot. And I probably don't have to work that much, but I'm kind of anal retentive about certain things. I have maybe 10 people that work for me in some capacity. So if I pass some of it on, I have people that do all the back end because I'm just not technical and watch it. And I have an attorney on staff when I need it. And I have all these different people when I need them. Once mm -hmm. you start making money and you really start paying the IRS more than a couple bucks, you have to start thinking about, you know, I incorporated I listed my company. I have a copyright on the name. That was the coolest thing when I, that I hung up in my office was the copyright for Ash Chef Dennis Productions. That was really cool. But it's a business, so you have to treat it as a business. You have to advertise. Advertise on Google. And it's finally started making a few dollars about a year ago. Up to that point, it was a loss because you have to work through it and you have to be there. But again, advertising is an important thing because you have to be in front of people. Otherwise they don't know who you are. They can't find you. Facebook, same thing. You have to advertise sometimes to get your name out there. And it's a part of business. When the companies hire me, I always include a portion of what I charge them for advertising because I want to boost that post that I wrote for them. I wanted to do well. It's, this is a business. We're in this together. A lot of bloggers don't think that way. A lot of bloggers just think about themselves and what's going in their pocket. So they don't get a lot of repeat business because of that. Companies that work with me keep coming back because I spend money on what they're hiring me to do besides yeah. just putting it in my pocket and running with it. So I get them some incredible return. So that's been good. But again, it's all a part of learning and it's and finding some other people to bounce things off of. And in and, and any business you do, you have to do that. You have to have people you feel comfortable enough with talking about your business so you can talk through all the problems you have and figure out solutions to them. And that's why I say your competitor, man, that should be your best friend. That should be the person you go out drinking with if you do, <laughs> because you can commiserate over business. And then you can say, I did this last week. Did it work? Yeah, it worked. Oh my God, I'm going to try that. I tried this and it didn't work. So don't waste your time. And I'm usually stupid enough to try it anyway. And I'll go, oh, you were right. It didn't work. <laughs> but uh, it's good to have those kind of people in your corner. And Google Plus really gave that to me because I met people from all over the world and I still talk to some of them. They're still my friends. And they would write to me and say, Dennis, did you see this? This is new. I don't know. No, I didn't. This is great. Or a new social media. I'm like, oh, I'm tired of social media. So now, but I went on, I'd get my name just to make sure no one else got my name and see what happens. But yeah, it's a community effort and it's a big time thing. Okay. Now you listed a few of your sources of revenue. What are your different sources and probably what's the large majority, I guess, by percentage? Largest majority would be the ad revenue through Mediavine. And that's probably about 85%. It could be smaller, but I choose not to work as much. I'm very particular about who I work for mm -hmm. in terms of writing sponsored posts. 
and I have a set rate. And if I, they don't make my rate, I just don't bother with them. I don't have to. I could work a lot, lot more than I do, but I, I'm retired. I keep telling people that they'll say, you know, we want you to do this for us. I go, I'm retired. Come on. We really want you. So I'll give them an outrageous price and they'll come back and go, okay. And I go, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, money still motivates me, even though I don't necessarily need to work that hard. Money is a great motivator. Money makes, you know, I love doing what I'm doing and I would still, I might not do it as much, but I would still be doing it. Even if I, because there were all those years I didn't make money and I was doing it. Um, but money is a great motivator. Money gives you a reason to really keep digging in. It, it pays for all the things that make you happy so you can work. It pays for things, for going out, for doing things, for traveling, for seeing things. So when I get to work, it's like, wow, and I get to work. It creates a reason to stay passionate about what you love doing. Or if I wasn't making money, I might not do it as much. I would still do it, but I would not be there as often as I am. I would not be seen as much as I'm seen. I would not be on podcasts. Now my SEO guy says, you got to go on podcasts because your, your backlinks are horrible. We need to get you more backlinks. So you need to do podcasts. And I found out I love doing podcasts. This is fun. My wife goes, oh yeah, you get to talk about yourself for an hour. I guess it is fun. <laughs> yeah. I enjoy the people that I meet and that I would not talk to otherwise. Yeah. You know, you and I probably could go out and have a beer or something, but Absolutely. our social circles probably would not intersect. No. That's what I loved about Google+. Plus. Mm -hmm. I had a show, and I had these visions of, of greatness at that time, too. It was called Good Day Google+, Plus, and I'm thinking, okay, once a week, but who knows, maybe every day, syndicated. And I'm like, and, and then after I got into it, it was like a lot of trouble. There's no way, even if I could do it every day, would I? But, but I got to meet people from all over the world, and I'd usually put three or four of them in the room with me, and it was a good show if they just talked to each other. Because they would ask each other, and they were always different lines of business and see how they intersect. And a lot of them went away as friends. That was the coolest thing. I introduced them to new friends. And if I, if you'd see me on the microphone going, and I would just keep trying to say something, I never got a chance. It was a good show. If I had to talk consistently, it was they weren't doing their part, and it was not a good show. So. Yeah. So... You mentioned this is not a full-time gig, but it, you do work a lot of hours for it. How many hours oh, a week do you probably work? I work 50 to 60 hours a week easy. Oh, scratch what I just said. <laughs> it's been a full-time job since we moved to Florida in 2013, and now we're back in Jersey. It has been my full-time job for almost 10 years now, and it was easier for me to do. I had to quit working because of a series of injuries. My back was just a mess from being on those kind of floors all my life, from being on concrete floors, even with mats. I had torn a rotator cuff in September, and I didn't get it looked at till June. It got better, and then it got worse, <laughs> and then it didn't want to get better. I had had two carpal tunnel surgeries on my right hand, and I needed a third, and they don't do a third. So I couldn't hold on to things. I couldn't stand for a lot of time. I couldn't lift my left arm above my head really well. I was becoming more of an accident waiting to happen at that point. I went to the best surgeons in Philadelphia and they're going, oh, we can't do anything for you. I'm going, I can't work like this. And then finally I went to an attorney because I didn't know what else to do. And he goes, you're done. He goes, do you want to be a cripple? And I went, 
no. And he goes, well, you're done. You are done until your body can recover and get better. You are done. So that got me to Florida and I couldn't work as much as I wanted to. So that I got to sit at a desk easy enough. So that gave me time to really work on social media more and on the blog more and spend, it was a different kind of hours. Like right now I probably spend 10 to 12 hours a week actually cooking. And the rest of it is working on the images that I take, editing them, writing the blog posts, working with the people that work with me. I have a girl that reshoots all of my old desserts because I had a blood sugar problem a couple of years ago because of the pandemic, because I was eating way too much uh, cakes and things I was baking. So she re- now she reduced all my old posts so I don't have to eat the whole cake anymore, force myself to eat the whole cake. <laughs> making sure that hers are done right and then editing her pictures and doing things. There's a lot that goes into it. Well, Um, you mentioned carpal tunnel. Is this not affecting your keyboarding skills? Actually, it's pretty good. It's these years just getting out of the kitchen because everything you do in the kitchen, all the cutting, all the cooking, stirring, everything was with your hands. Every now and then I get a little bit of a twinge. I actually was having a problem with my right hand about two years ago, so I moved my mouse over to the left, which was quite an adjustment. Took a long time to get used to that. Yeah, uh, but I got it, and uh, now it's back on the right. It has been. I don't spend more than like I said, ten to twelve hours a week. Actually, the most I cook is dinner every night, and then I try to write two to three new posts a week. They're an hour or two there generally. <laughs> One of the things I specialize in with my blog and why I am popular is I do restaurant style recipes. I do a lot of restaurant style. And in a restaurant, what we cook does not take a lot of time. Otherwise, we couldn't turn the dining room over and over and over and get people in so we can make money. So most of the things I cook take under 30 minutes. That's with the prep work involved. In the restaurant, the prep work's done earlier or people are doing Mm -hmm. it constantly while you're cooking. But the actual cooking of the food shouldn't take more than about 10 to 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops, depending on what you're cooking. So that's what a lot of my recipes are. And that's why they're popular because people can come home from work. They can just throw something together really easily and quick, or they can prep it the night before, even if it has to sit for a while and come in and cook it when they come home. That style of cooking doesn't require as much work. You know, where I was making 100 or 200 or something, I, I don't have to do that anymore. That's two. So it, it doesn't take, you know, cutting is done in, in five minutes. You know, chopping is done maybe in 10 if it's uh, making a soup. But so it doesn't require as much work. That, that brings up an interesting point. How have you defined your target market, your target consumer, and how do you come up with compelling content for them? That's a good question. And it's one that I debate with other food bloggers all the time on the compelling content. My niche is restaurant style recipe. My Mm -hmm. niche is quick under 30, although I never really took advantage of it until recently under 30 minute meals, but easy recipes that don't have for the most part, not a lot of ingredients. The people I'm looking for is for good, authentic, cooking that you can do at home and kind of look like a superstar when you get done. You know, I'm not teaching you to make something that looks like it came out of a can or that's fast food. I'm making, I'm teaching you to make something that looks like you got at your favorite Italian restaurant or better. Uh, so that's my niche. So developing that niche 
And actually what got me a lot of people was a dessert I make, a tiramisu. I used to be number one. I was number one in tiramisu forever. And then the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Food Network all started doing recipes and bumped me down and bumped me down out of the number one position. But that every day of the year, that was my biggest post. So people would come see that and they would look for something else. So that was a big help for me. Now, when you asked about how I make compelling recipes, well, a lot of my friends have a tool that's called SEM Rush, and you search keywords and you find out what keywords have the most appeal. So if I wanted to do a chicken recipe and I would say chicken parm, chicken cordon bleu, which ones I just made, things like that. And if that doesn't get enough search volume, that, that's only looking at 1,200 hits a month. That's not worth my trouble. Chicken fricassee, that's getting 100,000. All right, I'm going to make that. Well, that's how a lot of other bloggers operate. Mm-hmm. I go, what do I feel like eating? Or my friends are coming over. What should I make for them? That's how I pick my recipes. I make what I've eaten out and I want to recreate. I make something that I'd forgotten about and want to make again or things, just something new. I go through a lot of magazines and I look at pictures. We're very visual people. In fact, there's a saying in food is that you eat with your eyes. So I always tell people to make it a little pretty. Take a minute. My wife laughs at me because I still grab a napkin or paper towel and I wipe the plate after I after I plate it to make sure it's not spilled across it. And then a little fresh parsley to make it perk a little bit or something else for some color. A few seconds worth of work can make all the difference when you present something and people go, ooh, pretty. You eat with your eyes first, and then the aroma, and then the taste. So it just builds. It's a sensory thing. Food is sensory. So I pick my recipes based on what I like to eat and I like to eat. It's like, yeah. oh, I found a new company to get pork from. Let's see what we can make. Well, that brings up an interesting point. We had taken a trip to Europe. It was our first trip ever to Europe abroad. And we went to Switzerland. We visited Lucerne, uh, which I believe you also enjoyed. Yes. Love Lucerne. What was your favorite travel adventure that you've done so far? So far, ooh. well, I will always love Paris. Paris is my favorite city. I've been there four times, and uh, it was the first place my wife and I ever went to together, our first trip. There's so many. I, yeah, there's so many things from each one. I love Italy. I love Italian food. The last one we went to was tr- we went in the Trento district of Italy, which is up closer to Switzerland. That was amazing. Oh. The cheeses there were just great. Every region, and and she laughs when we go out to eat because every meal I have while I'm having it and the chef is there talking to me and sharing some things with me, it's the best meal I've ever had until, because I get so into it until later on, I can say, all right, well, I could have done this or maybe this, but I embrace every travel adventure. Our first Viking cruise was probably one of the most memorable events of my life. I had just started travel blogging and I had started to get some renown, not a lot, but some. And I got an email from Viking saying, you fit our area, you know, and I went, yay, I'm old. Okay. Number one, and number two, oh my God, it's Viking. And the first cruise they upgraded, we walked in and it's just, I hope you don't mind. We upgraded you to a suite. I'm like, oh damn, nothing in steerage. And it was like, oh my God, I could live like this. And we couldn't pay for anything. They were just so kind. And the chefs taking me into the kitchen and the one manager saying, what's he doing here? He shouldn't be in here. And he just went like that to the guy. 
And they turned to me and goes, just be careful. <laughs> but it was just magical. I had no idea. We did a big cruise and I, we both came off the, the big ship cruise going, I don't think we're cruise people because we like to get out and about and see and with the locals and really do our thing and just adventure. Well, the Viking, we pulled up to the port, right to the dock, right off of, we were in Vienna, you know, the cities like that or Budapest. And we're right in the middle of town. We get off the ship and walk right into town. And it was like, oh my God, and eat wherever we wanted if we didn't want to eat on the ship. And they take us out and show us the sights first and then cut us loose. It was like, damn, this is great. So I, I think that if I look back is probably the most memorable, but every trips, Lucerne was amazing. Switzerland was just expensive, but amazing. Italy, every part of Italy from Rome to this, to the Amalfi coast. Uh, we had a trip of a lifetime planned when COVID hit, we were going to do Sicily for a conference mm-hmm. first, stay there and then go up to Rome and just hang out for a week and then go over to Croatia. And we we're picking up a cruise that was going to go all the way around Italy and stop at everywhere we'd been or, and hadn't been, and then go to Nice, back to Nice. We were in Nice before and it was, and then COVID hit and I was like, oh, can't do it. But you know, the, the trips, Greece, we went to Greece and it was, I don't know if I'd go back, but it was an amazing trip. You know, I, I have the allure. Europe just just pulls to me. You know, Italy pulls to me. France, Spain. We were in Madrid, and I could live in Madrid. The thing I found the most interesting about Madrid was like it was being in New York City, but everybody was happy. They were smiling. They were laughing. They were out at 11, 12 o'clock at night. The streets were packed. And they all dressed like Americans. Like where you go to France, they're Europeans. So travel has been a fun, uh, travel doesn't pay the bills. Food pays the bills. I was called the accidental travel blogger. I had a friend, I just moved to Orlando area. And I had a friend tell me that a hotel or a property on the beach on the Atlantic coast was looking for bloggers. And I said, I'm not a travel blogger. She goes, no, just apply, just apply. I sent my information over a couple of weeks later, I get a note saying, Oh, we'd love to host you. You know, once you come over and I got the last room they had and it was on the third floor and it wasn't a real pretty room because they were redoing the levels. They had the start of the first ground level and they hadn't gotten to the second yet, but they had put in, Nine foot sliding glass doors, these European windows, the doors that they had. And I'm standing at the door looking out at the ocean and it kind of clicked for me. I went, I can do this. Was that build it and they will come? Write about it and they will send you. So I started working in the state of Florida and I always tell people, if you want to be a travel blogger, start local. Write about your city and then go to the next city over and write about that. And then the next one over and then take something a few hours and just start building your sphere of influence of what you're known for. So we did that in Florida. You know, Florida is a huge state, though. So I was going more than the next city. I was going to where this one select group of hotels. They were all boutique hotels. So I would stay. I would write to the man, the one that was doing all their PR and say, I want a hotel for at least four nights on either the Gulf or the Atlantic. Well, the first time she says, okay, I got one on the Gulf and one on the Atlantic. I went, oh my goodness. 
So I took both. And then after that, I says, okay, I'll have one of the Atlantic and one of the Gulf. So then I just started asking for it and they kept sending me. And then I spoke at the governor's conference on tourism one year in Florida. And I was, someone reached out to me and I said, are you sure you have the right person? She says, yeah, we want you to speak at the governor's conference. So I was like, okay. And then that's when the Viking thing happened. And then that escalated. And then I found another travel company uh, that would send me places and other cruise lines would send me places. And it, it just became a lot of fun. And we would go to Europe and we would try to stay for four to six weeks, however long we could get. So we wouldn't have to fly back over again and build stuff around that. Some of it on our own, some of it on, on the companies, you know? Okay. Now, what are some, what are two or three tips that you've got that you could give regarding SEO that you found really moved the needle? Well, the biggest move for me was I hired a gentleman named Casey Marquis. He does audits on blogs. And when I got him, the first time I got him, it was, I think it was $900. And I was like, oh my God, it's a lot of money to pay. I wasn't making very much. Well, best money I ever spent. That was, I think in April, I had the audit. In May, my uh, revenue doubled. And in June and July, it quadrupled. So having someone who knew SEO and help me fix a lot of the obvious errors that I had no idea what they were. Getting a pair of eyes on there. You know, there's a lot of people out there that pretend to know SEO too. So you got to be careful who you pick. I had a good friend named David Amerlin who, who did a lot about Google semantic search. And I was always a joke. I said, on a good day, I can spell SEO. I don't know a whole lot. I've since learned quite a bit, but I still am nowhere near that level that Casey is. And he's a good guy. And he, again, says, well, you can do it this way, but I sure wouldn't. He says, if you want to make some money, you want to get some presence. And part of it is always staying on top of the algorithm changes that Google does. I've only been affected by one of them so far. And that was last November. People are just crying the blues when they change the algorithms. And it's writing for Google. You have to kind of change your method about placing keywords. And I have no problem using keywords. I have a tool that I use called Rank IQ, which is really not expensive. And you get a good idea of other words that should be in your posts. And that helps Google find it easier. It's not like I'm scheming the system or playing the system. I'm letting Google know what I'm writing about more so that they actually show it. So you have to learn these kind of tips and tricks, there we go, to to make yourself more visible. And that's the same thing with social media. People say, oh, you're using social media, you're playing a game. I says, no, I'm not. I'm advertising. Social media is free advertising. And if you don't take advantage of it, you know, you're just being foolish because Facebook used to really be good. Now it's, you got to pay for what you want. And and Mm -hmm. again, I have no problem doing that if it's for a client. I don't do it for myself, but uh, Twitter, Instagram, even Pinterest is coming back. I just hired someone to put more of my posts on Pinterest. Google stories is big right now. So I have someone that writes, does the stories for me and puts them up and you'll see them. If you have Google search on your, not search, but the the little advertise not advertisements posts that they have on different topics that you might look at. Uh, if I swipe left on my screen, I get all these Google things and I'll show up there in stories sometimes and I'll see myself. So it's a good way to get people to see you, to find you. 
because otherwise the type of advertising we used to do has changed. We don't do newspaper. We don't do radio. TV is just too expensive. So social media is your advertising. Facebook, I used to have, I have almost a million followers on Facebook. I would have had if I had kept going the way I had been, but that just kind of dried out. Instagram, since Facebook took it, has, has dried out a little bit. Pinterest, hot and cold, used to be great. Now it's coming back a little bit. So the only thing you really have control over is your site, your blog, and also your email list. Email list is the only thing you own, really, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it. So you have to work on that. Again, I was terrible at that. So I hired someone three years ago, and she's been a godsend and has writes my email that she just mentioned that we moved. She, she writes them. She's as many of, you know, I was in Florida. We just moved back to New Jersey. Yada, yada, yada. I'm like, Oh, I love her. You know, she just writes, she knows I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan and it pains her to write about it because she's an Eagle fan, but you know, she will, uh, she'll mention that occasionally. Um, Give her a special assignment for when Dallas plays Philly. <laughs> I don't even ask then because I don't want to rock the boat. I'll put on a, a Eagles jersey if it means she keeps writing for me, you know. Smart man. <laughs> <laughs> She's good. She's really good. And I'm lucky. I have some really good people that work for me. Well, let's get ready to wrap this up. Is there anything I haven't asked that you asked you that you'd like to talk about? No, we, we covered a lot of stuff. Starting a business, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, try it. Again, people, you you don't fail unless you try. You never know unless you try, and you're going to fail. I failed the first six, seven years, really, because I was learning what I was doing. I wasn't fully vested in it, and I was trying, but I wasn't trying as best as I could. And there were a lot, a lot of failures in there, but I just kept working at it. I didn't start a new business. I just kept refining it, refining it, refining it, and fixing it. So you learn as you go, or... Maybe what you thought was a good idea really wasn't. So, you, but you learn something from it. Every failure teaches you something. Okay, Every, it's an opportunity. So, if you want to be your own boss, I'm telling you, I could not work for someone else anymore. But I'm a slave driver, so I don't mind working for me. But I mean, there's some days it's just being able to control what you do and when you do it. There's a lot to be said for that. Okay, what's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? And you may have just given it. I think that was it. Don't be afraid to try. If there's something you really want to do, you know, don't quit your day job, but try it. And who knows? You know, I love seeing those success stories. Nobody starts out being a blogger. It's always they're doing it. They're trying to pick it up. Um, I'm leaving my six-figure job at this company because I can blog now full time. It's like you, you hear that and you go, oh my God, I don't know if I would have ever done that, but good for you. But they find peace in that because again, you, you quality of life. I always tell people don't ever get a job just for money. Money's great. But if you're only working for money, your quality of life's going to suck because eventually you'll become hating yourself and you'll hate everything you do. Like where I wake up in the morning and I'm still happy because I get to cook today or I'm going to eat today. So for me, it worked out really, really well. But, you know, if you like flowers, you know, you can blog about anything and people will read them. You know, uh, the, the different topics that are available for you, if you're passionate. And I always tell people 40 is a good time to start planning for your future. 35 is better. And I tell people that want to be bloggers, I says, look, start now. Don't quit your day job. 
let's plan for your future so that when you're 50, they can be mailing those checks to the beach to you, where you're wherever, whatever island you're on. They direct deposit really, really nicely. doesn't matter where you are. Exactly. Just start creating and start that path. So when you reach the age, like I retired late, but maybe you can retire at 50 instead of 60 if you get to that point. So start work, work for long game. Don't think you're going to go out and make an immediate killing because you're not. And it's going to be painful. Amen. <laughs> be real, and the lessons are going to be painful. And you're going to cry because you think you should be better than you are. And that doesn't happen. It's going to take two to three years to get people to really to get you really rolling, honestly. You know, especially this, as it gets saturated. But in whatever you choose, you know, I have friends that are like a tar blogger, an automotive blogger. People read everything. You know, I think that's podcasting's the, great too. Yeah, I think that's actually the another addiction. You know, people are addicted to content. Write about what your passion is, whatever. If it's quilting, you know, there's people out there, and it does not matter. There's people out there. If you are passionate about what you do, and you do it regularly. That's the big key. Whether it's one post a week, two posts a week, three posts a week, do it regularly. One post every two weeks, do it regularly and start building your email list. And then gradually three years, depending on how fast you want it to move, three years, five years, 10 years, by that time, you know, you got an income coming in, you can go sit on a beach and drink margaritas. Sounds good. Well, what's the best way for people to check you out and get in touch with you, Chef Dennis? Well, I am askchefdennis.com, and my email's out there, too, on the page. And you can find me on social media as Ask Chef Dennis. All right. I'm pretty much everywhere. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Chef Dennis, for being my guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. My pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me. Check out the newly redesigned Entrepreneurs Over 40 website at www.entrepreneursover40.com. While you're there, sign up to get updates from us. Also, don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.